It's Friday the 7th of October and this is your CE Advance Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. I'm joined again by Neil Shearing, our Group Chief Economist. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. Every Friday now that we've been speaking, it seems we've been talking about central banks and inflation and the risks of over-tightening and very much about what's happening in, in the near term. But I thought this week we could do something slightly different, step back and talk about Spotlight, which is this major project that we've launched this week, titled The Fracturing of the Global Economy. It's a big work. You guys have put a lot of time and effort into producing this 70-page this report and all the materials that are associated with it. And it's available on our website under our key issues section. There's a lot to, to unpack here, but at the heart of it is this idea that geopolitics is back in terms of influencing how global economic policymaking unfolds. It all revolves around this idea of this emergence of, of these, these two blocks, the US-led block and the China-led block. And there are some really striking charts in there and, and striking data points. Uh, one thing that jumps out, I think, just to start off is this idea that there's a, a big difference in the geographic and demographic size of the two blocks, but there's also a big difference in terms of, of how they stack up in economic terms. And, and I guess putting it bluntly, that the China block doesn't come out too favorably here. Yes, the context here is the work that we undertook in 2019 as part of our Spotlight series then. Back then we were looking at globalization. We argued that globalization had peaked, that it could go into reverse, and that this wasn't really about President Trump and his trade wars. There was more fundamental drivers of uh, of this process. And since then, of course, we've had the double whammy of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. And that's caused us to rethink really the thesis. And we've we've shifted from a view where we think the world isn't necessarily deglobalizing to one where it's fracturing, it's coalescing around these two blocks, as you say, a US block and a China block. So first point is fracturing is not deglobalization. Second point is you're right, while there's th these two blocks might be fluid and blurred around the edges, there's a, quite a large disparity in the size and economic clout of each block. The China block has as many countries as the US block in it, but the size of those economies are much smaller. So much more trade happens within the US bloc than happens within the China bloc. The China bloc is more dependent on the US bloc for final demand and GDP in the US bloc is larger than GDP in the China bloc. So you've got these this, this world fracturing into two blocks, the edges of which are blurred, but the, the economic weight of each of them is, is, is imbalanced. And that's something that runs through the heart of this analysis. The implications of that is something that, that runs through this analysis. So there's been this virtual cottage industry of colonists writing about how globalization is dead, particularly in the wake of the war in Ukraine, but also the pandemic and, and US-China decoupling before that and around that. And this, this report makes the case that globalization isn't actually dead. But if it isn't dead, what, what exactly is it? I think that's an absolutely crucial point. We're not saying here that globalization is dead. We're not saying that globalization is going to be reversed or is going to deglobalize. What we're saying is that in our view, geopolitics is back as a fact that will influence economic policy decisions. We've been through the last 30 years where governments and companies have worked in unison to integrate across the world and, and their incentives have been aligned in that way. Whereas now, this fracturing is being pushed by governments rather than companies. And that has implications, important implications for, 
for how this will play out. And that's why we don't think that globalization will necessarily be reversed. Because if you think about it, there's no real incentive for the US government to push back against the production of many basic consumer goods in China in terms of US imports. You know, there's no reason why I think in 10 years time there would be geopolitical reasons why the US wouldn't want to be buying furniture or toys from, from China. But there are plenty of reasons why it wouldn't want to purchasing cutting edge technology, you know, mobile phones, for example, having those those are imported from from China. So so many of the global supply chains will stay pretty much untouched, I think, in our central scenario, but by by fracturing. But other supply chains, I think, will be reordered, and it's particularly around technology, technology goods, and, and those goods that kind of touch on, on, on national security issues. And I guess another part of, of the, the puzzle that, that perhaps won't see a overt retreat is financial claims between the blocks. I thought one of one of them loads of great content in there, but but one thing that I think was striking was was in your report that you co-authored with Jonas Goldman from our our markets team, um, which talks about financial globalization. Can you talk a bit about the role of of finance in driving this wave of globalization? Yes, I mean, one of the things we try to do when we think about these big issues and how they're going to shape the global economy is we, we reach for the history books and we try to think about what are the parallels in the past that we can draw on what, and, and the lessons there. And there have been two prior waves of globalization, I think, that you can think about. One that run that ran from the late 19th century to the start of the First World War in 1914. Then you had a period of deglobalization in the interwar period. And then in the post-war period, we had the birth of Bretton Woods, we had the beginnings of the general agreement on tariffs and trade, the GATT agreements, successive rounds of tariff reductions and, and trade globalization there. Then that ended with the, the Bretton Woods institutions broke down in, in the 70s with the Nixon shock. And then we had a third wave of globalization that began in the 1990s with the integration of China and other former communist countries in Eastern Europe, for example, that the integration of those into the, into the global economy. So you've got these three waves. All of them have a strong element of trade. All of them have a strong element of migration. So you've got trade globalization and labor globalization. But what marks the latest wave of globalization out from the previous two was there was a significant financial element. You had lots of cross-border financial flows were, were a salient feature of the last wave of globalization. And that's partly because of a policy shift. So that what followed the breakdown of the Bretton Woods institutions was the Washington consensus, and that emphasized the importance of having open capital accounts and flexible exchange rates, and that lent itself to, to greater capital flows in the global economy, but also technological shifts. So the, the cost of and the time taken to, to, to shift money across borders fell dramatically as a result of new technologies in the, in the 90s and 2000s. So the key point is here that in the last wave of globalization, there was a, a large financial element. And the consequence of that was that we had large amounts of cross-border claims that were built up, financial claims that were built up between different economies. And so you've got this complex web now of financial claims across these blocks and within these blocks. So particularly within the US block, large amounts of cross-border claims, but also between the US block and between the China block. Now, 
if you have a mild form of fracturing, I suspect those claims remain broadly as they are. I don't think they're going to grow to any great extent, but I don't think they get unraveled. The really messy situation comes with if you get a very aggressive fracturing of these two blocks between the US block and the China block, are these claims started to be unwind in a, in a disorderly way? And does that cause significant financial dislocation in the global economy? There's several ways you can imagine that that might happen, the most obvious of which would be kind of conflict around Taiwan. But that would create an absolutely enormous catastrophic financial crisis as a result of the fact that these that these big financial claims that have been built up around across borders. The second point is the dollar in all of this remains absolutely dominant. So often when we talk to clients about fracturing, the first thing they say is, well, of course, yeah, the China block is going to push for the internationalization of the renminbi. China will try to push the renminbi out there as a trading currency, but also increasingly as a reserve currency in the world. And I think that they will do that, but I don't think they'll have much success. All of our analysis lends itself and leads us to the conclusion that, that actually the dollar remains dominant. The US financial system continues to, to provide the plumbing for the, the world's financial system. And of course, that gives the US bloc enormous financial clout. So you talk about the complexities of these claims between the, these two blocks, the, the US-led bloc and, and the, the bloc of countries aligned with, with China. And I think that elsewhere in the report, it reflects the idea that, that because of the, these interdependencies, because of the complexity around them, that we're not expecting this fundamental break. That's not our core scenario, is it, in terms of looking at the global economic outlook? No. So what we've done in this report is we've outlined what we think is the central scenario, which is, I mean, frankly, a relatively benign form of fracturing. It sounds quite dramatic, the world fracturing into these blocks. And certainly when we talk to clients about the the implications of this, they, the, the, there's more concern, I think. But it, you know, is in the in the grand scheme of things, it's a relatively benign scenario. We don't get this big fracturing of supply chains, for example, or financial relationships. But I think there's two ways that it could play out in a less benign fashion. One would be if the blocks themselves don't hold. So we're potentially one U.S presidential election away from the reinstigation of trade wars with Europe, new trade tariffs being put in place and, and a kind of return to 2017-2018. So, so the, the kind of core parts of the US bloc, the US and Europe, don't necessarily hold. There's some, there's some friction there. The most dramatic, however, escalation of fracturing would be if there's conflict between the two blocs. So we have a kind of economic severing, if you like, in some areas, but not all areas, a financial severing in some areas, but not all areas, political severing in some areas, but not all areas, but we don't have any conflicts between the two blocks. Now, clearly that, that's a possibility. Taiwan, as we've just spoken about, is, is an, an obvious flashpoint. But there, there are other ways you can imagine that the fracturing would escalate. And it's at those points where you get really significant, I think, economic and market consequences. So really what we're trying to do here is provide clients with a framework for thinking through the forces that are, that are driving fracturing and the developments that will shape the different outcomes. So I guess to wrap it up, to bring it back as well to the present right now, you've got markets and, and corporates and indeed households very, very jittery about inflation, about rising prices, about central bank actions that may drive economies into recession. I know this week we forecast a mild recession in the US next year. So anxiety levels in general seem to be rising. Does this imply that that we are looking at a more dangerous world in terms of, of geopolitics as well, that that's another layer of anxiety to, to add? I think it does, even if you have a relatively benign form of fracturing, 
the risk or possibility of extreme events has escalated. It's much higher now. And there's, as I said, that can happen along different lines. It can happen with the fracturing within the blocks or between the blocks. So yes, the short point version is that even if you end up with a relatively benign form of fracturing in the central scenario, there's lots of ways that this could escalate. The world becomes a more risky place. And this impacts particularly on the supply side of the global economy. We've been through a world where you've integrated billions of workers into the global labor force. And that's meant that the supply of goods and services has been expanded. And there's a, there's more of a safety valve, if you like, in the global economy. There's flex in the global economy because the supply uh, of these goods and services is, is much greater. If you're going to a world where there's more friction on the supply side, then I think you're you're into a world where, where it's more risky and the, the possibility of extreme outcomes are higher. So shortly after Neil and I spoke, the US government announced new controls on exports of semiconductor technology to China. It's part of this broader drive by Washington to limit Chinese access to what it considers to be strategically important technology. This license regime, it's not just going to apply to US firms who want to export to China, but firms in third-party countries. So, so other countries in the US bloc are also going to have to apply. It's another crack in this trading relationship between the blocks, and we discuss what it all means in Chapter 2 of the Spotlight Report. Mike Pierce argues that our base case is that moves like this lead to a big reshaping of trade flows. But he also warns that it could be worse, that there could be this broader and more economically damaging rupture in global trade. The Spotlight Report's got a lot more detailed analysis, not just on things like, like goods trade and chips, but also migration, capital flows, economic outcomes, and much more. You'll find it in the advanced section of the website, along with all the macro and market coverage and data you need to know what's coming down the track. But that's it from me this week. Next week, we'll be talking about the upcoming party congress in China, and you'll be hearing the latest progress report from Neil about central banks and their inflation battles. See you then.